I think a little bit in the back of their minds, they're thinking, is this really going to happen? Maybe I shouldn't get my hopes up. You girls think that sometimes? Maybe we shouldn't get our hopes up. Maybe this isn't really going to happen. Maybe dad will be allergic. Maybe, right? And so there's this tempering. We, we think, oh, a puppy for Christmas. Like nothing is better, right, than a puppy for Christmas. Have you guys ever watched those videos? There's some videos on YouTube of kids getting surprised by puppies. And honestly, like it makes me cry. It is, it is one of the most tear-jerking things you can watch, is a kid getting surprised by a puppy. Um, and, and so... There's a temptation when you think about that to hedge your bets, to just back away from the hope a little bit, right? Because you don't want to be disappointed. Because a lot of us have been disappointed, right? When we thought that something was going to happen, when we thought that there was going to be some sort of breakthrough, when we thought there was going to be some kind of deliverance, when we, when we looked forward with hope to something, and then our hopes were dashed, right? It, it teaches us something deep in our bodies, to, to not, not get your hopes up. Don't expect too much. Just calm down. Yeah? And it's, it's with stuff that's a lot more serious than a puppy, even though you know, puppies can be pretty serious as well. Um, so you guys can relate to this. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of stories that we love are, revolve around this theme. At least a lot of the stories I love. I, I thought of Lord of the Rings when I was thinking about this stuff, right? So Lord of the Rings is this story, this sweeping, epic story of like darkness. Sauron is, is, is beginning to march, you know. His armies seem unstoppable. Nobody's, no, nobody's sure what, what's going to happen. But there's these prophecies, right? There's these prophecies. And uh, here's one of them. This one was one of my favorite poem slash prophecies in Lord of the Rings. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. There's something in us that resonates, right? Yeah, that's what we want. That's what we want. Yet in the story, uh, there's a lot of cynicism around those prophecies, right? This, it, this is a prophecy that the true king is going to reveal himself and he's going to bring justice and peace to the realm. Yeah, because it's, you know, it's, it's a nerdy fantasy thing. And uh, that's, that's the prophecy. And of course, in Lord of the Rings, what happens at the end? Spoiler alert if you haven't read this or seen this. But it happens, right? The true king is, is, uh, is anointed and he brings justice. He defeats Sauron, right? The true king comes. Of course, Frodo had a big part in that, right? And there's tons, tons of great themes. But uh, the reason we love those things is oftentimes because we don't feel like we see it in real life, right? Contrast that with another fantasy th- series called Game of Thrones, right? Game of Thrones is it's a bit rough, but... The, the point I want to make is that this, uh, the, the author of Game of Thrones makes a point to dash our hopes. He gets us, he, he knows that storyline. Here's the hero. They're going to conquer evil. They're going to do it. And then at the moment, like, I knew this was coming, like, but each time I'm frustrated and upset and surprised every time it happens that that person dies, right? You think, oh, this is the hero of the story. They're going to bring justice. They're going to bring peace. And then what he does is he cuts them off. He cuts them off, and he knows what he's doing, right? And there's a cynicism to that, isn't there? There's a cynicism to that. There's a way for him to say, he's leading us along, and then he says, gotcha, boom, he's dead. Now what are you going to do? It's a way of saying, welcome to the real world, buddy. This is what life is actually like. All those dreams are not worth holding on to. 
better get used to how life really is. Hedge your bets, don't get your expectations too high, try to figure out how to survive. This is the real world. And I imagine that's a lot of what a lot of Israelites felt when they heard Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy that uh, Spencer read today is almost ridiculously utopian, isn't it? Like, it's almost like Isaiah's going out of his way to, to proclaim the most ridiculous things that he can to try to indicate the level of transformation that's going to come when God comes to redeem his people, to deliver his people from darkness, injustice, from violence. It's the, these are incredible scenes, right? The king's going to come, the, and, and it's going to be so transformative that, that, uh, that all of creation is going to be transformed. Even the animal world, where people, it seems natural for you know, lions to eat lambs, but they're going to lay down together. Kids are going to just hang out with cobras. What's up, Cobra? It reminds me of that, uh, this isn't very helpful, but it reminds me of that uh, Saturday Night Live sketch, uh, Mark Wahlberg Talks to Animals. That's a pretty fun one. But anyway, uh, you know, so there's this, uh, <clears throat> what's up, Cobra? Um, there's this sense in which uh, the hope that Isaiah puts forth is almost too good to be true. And I would imagine a lot of Israelites felt that way about it. To say, those prophecies are nice, but here we are in Babylon. Right? Those prophecies are nice in the time of Jesus, yet the Romans just do whatever they want. And we've got to figure out how to exist in this political realm until we can really mount a good revolution and bring, bring those things to pass. Right? So there's a lot of this kind of thinking of, this is what's realistic. This is what we can expect. Don't get your hopes up too high. Isaiah was trying to help us feel better, but it's not actually going to happen. So everybody, let's just calm down here. And this is, this is what we see in our world, right? This is what we see in our world today. I, I, I was just reading, you know, Matt was talking about Aleppo, and there's, a, there's, there's an abundance of this kind of thing to go out and look for. It. And I confess, my temptation is always to look away. I just don't want to know. I, it's, it's too hard, I, you know? I don't, I don't want to know. I, I read about uh, there's a murder trial for a police officer. Um, it's one of the most clear-cut, videotaped uh, evidences of some, he, he shot a black man in the back five times as he was running away. It's a murder trial. It's, it's kind of open and shut. It feels like an open and shut case. It feels like if, if justice can come for anyone, it should come for that black man and his family. And yet, the jury right now, because of one juror, who refuses to deliver the guilty verdict. And they have to be unanimous. One person won't do it. And it's in danger right now. They're gonna, they're gonna try to sort it out Monday. But it's in danger right now of going into a, going into a mistrial. And I look at that and I think, oh, like even when, even when justice seems so clear cut, it's, it's hard to find it. It's hard to find it. And so the temptation is not to get your hopes up too high because it sounds too good to be true. But today, even in the face of all of that, we proclaim the good news that God's kingdom of justice and peace has come, is present among us, and we can participate in it today. And so how, if that's true, how in the world do we do that? That's the question. How in the world do we do that? And I think there's some clues in the gospel reading. Um, so to get to kind of set the scene, the gospel reading uh, is, 
you know, it takes place. John the Baptist seems to just sort of appear out of nowhere onto the scene. Uh, obviously, we have some stories in Luke about his birth and, and where he kind of came from. But it's interesting in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, he just appears out of nowhere in John's gospel. Boom. He's on the scene. He is a voice calling in the wilderness. And his first words are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's just around the corner. It's, it's about to come. Get ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. And in most Jews' minds would be this, the prophecies like the one we read from Isaiah. They would think, oh, that kingdom, God coming to rescue his people, God coming to bring justice to the poor and to the oppressed, God coming to crush the oppressor, as we read in Psalm 72, that is about to take place. That is what's coming. And so their response is understandable. They come from all around. They come out to the wilderness where John is dressed kind of weirdly. Um, he's basically, he's dressed like a prophet. He would look like to everybody the second coming of Elijah. That's kind of what he was enacting. He was dressed like Elijah. He hung out in the wilderness like Elijah. He was calling people to repent. And there's a prophecy in Malachi that says Elijah will come, you know, before the day of the Lord. And so I'm sure these things were resonating with people as they came out to be baptized. To say, we want to repent. We want to receive this kingdom. We want to prepare ourselves we want to make straight the path that the Lord is going to walk on uh, so he can come to us. And so John announces this. Repent. God's coming back. He's, he's coming. But this isn't, you know, the, the Advent season is an interesting one because we're waiting. But it's an interesting kind of waiting. It's the same kind of waiting that uh, John the Baptist encouraged uh, the people of Israel to do, which was not this passive waiting. This isn't like, have you guys seen those memes of Michael Jackson eating popcorn? Does anybody, does anybody know this one? So it's Michael Jackson eating popcorn. And it, it has become like this. Uh, you post it on any like comment thread that you're just like, I'm just going to watch what happens here, right? So somebody posts something somewhat incendiary. And then you're just like, you, you ever have that response? I don't think it's very godly. But I, like, I do it all the time. I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait to see what somebody says to this, right? And so people will post like just a meme of Michael Jackson eating popcorn to indicate I'm waiting to see what happens, right? <laughs> All that to say, that's not how we wait uh, during Advent. I know that was kind of a roundabout way of bringing Michael Jackson into the sermon, but uh, I think it was worth it. Was it worth it? I think it was worth it. Um, So anyway, so it's not that kind of waiting. We don't just sit back. You know, people weren't coming out to the wilderness and like popping some popcorn and bringing their recliners and going like, can't wait to see what the Lord does here, right? That's not the kind of waiting John's encouraging, right? John is saying, repent, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And what, what is that, what's the action? Be baptized. Be baptized. Come. I'm going to dunk you in a muddy river. Kind of a, he's probably a smelly. You know, he, he's probably smelled weird. He looked weird. And he's going to dunk you in a muddy river. That's repentance. Right? That's what he's calling people to. But there's this active sense of I'm doing something as I wait. I'm doing something in order to wait. I'm coming to the God who's coming to me. I'm preparing the way. I'm making the road smooth. I'm getting things out of the way so that I can receive the kingdom that is at hand. That's what he's calling them to. And baptism was the way that he did this. Now, this would have been difficult for people uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, John is in the wilderness. And the wilderness is not the place where spiritually important things happen. That's the temple. And so John is intentionally moving outside the realm of the official spiritually important place and saying, you know what? God's about to bring his kingdom. All the promises are about to come true. Uh, But that thing you guys built, 
in honor to that God, he's actually going to bypass that. He's coming out to the desert, to the wilderness. Now, we think of wilderness and we think of like Northwest woods, beautiful. You know, we, we think of that as like beautiful. That's not how these people thought of wilderness. They thought of wilderness as dirty, uh, dangerous, right? That's where the wild animals live. It's, it's dusty. It's, you're, you're far away from any kind of civilization. So, so John is in the wilderness. That would have made it difficult for people and also symbolically sort of subversive because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be cleansed and prepare myself for God's coming, but I'm not going to the temple. There's already rituals for cleansing. You want to be cleansed? We got stuff. You can come to the temple and do. But John says, don't do any of that. That won't help you. You need to come out here and you need to be baptized in this muddy river. <laughs> That's what you need to do. So it would have been difficult because they're moving outside the realm of the official spiritual thing that people are supposed to do in that day. And it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out. They they weren't baptized, though, were they? They came out just to watch. So can you imagine, like, you've got your religious leaders standing standing on the sidelines, and you're there because you're really interested in the kingdom of God, and you want to be baptized, but you see them up there, right, kind of with their notebooks out, maybe taking names. Oh, I think I recognize uh, Matt over there. Is he going to get baptized? Can you guys imagine? There's a little bit of fear, I think, that I would feel to say, what am I doing if I... If I really do this, like I'm crossing some kind of a bridge here uh, of respectability, of like safety, I could be bringing persecution on myself if I do this. And so that's the first reason it would be difficult. The second reason is that baptism wasn't, bapti- you didn't, if you were a Jew, you didn't need to be baptized. You're part of the people of God already by birth. Gentiles are people who need to be baptized. Gentiles are people who, if you want to become part of the people of God, well, here is the prescribed way that you do that. And part of that is this ritual. And so for a Jew to say, I need to be baptized, is pretty scandalous as well, because their predominant consciousness was that, I don't need to be baptized. I'm part of the people of God. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I keep the Sabbath. That's how, they would, that's how they would have thought about it. And so to be baptized is this act of humility to say, I need to do the same thing a Gentile needs to do in order to prepare myself for the coming of God's kingdom. And so uh, here's, here's an analogy. It would be a bit like um, a hip, cool, missional church that meets in a brewery being told, hey, God is coming. God's coming to renew his promises. He's bringing his grace and renewal in a new way. Uh, And you guys are going to be able to get in on it. Oh, but here's the thing. It's not going to happen here. It's not going to happen during one of your gatherings. It's not going to happen during one of the normal things that you do. Uh, To get in on it, here's what you need to do. You need to drive out to the sticks. There's a little church near a strip mall, you know, like right next to a Walmart. uh, That's kind of between Fortville and Greenville. Um, it's kind of just way out there, right? Or Greenfield, Fortville and Greenfield. It's, it's way out there. It's in the boonies. Uh, it's in a strip mall. Uh, I think it's called, you know, the, the first apostolic sprinkled in the blood church of the second coming, something like that. And uh, you need to go out there. And this church is led by Clem and Bertha. Clem and Bertha don't have any teeth. The reason they don't have any teeth is that they're recovering meth addicts. And uh, I want you to go uh, they, they live in the local trailer park. Um, they're going to be wearing old bowling shirts from the local thrift store. They're my chosen instruments. 
and this is my chosen place. I want you to go there. This is God speaking to us, a missional church that meets in a brewery. Uh, I want you to go there, and uh, I want you to submit to their bilingual preaching and their worship services that last four hours. And, uh, and the prayers they pray ecstatically with tears running down their faces. I want you to submit to that. Oh, and w- I want you to get in one of the prayer lines. And they're going to pray over you with a Holy Spirit handkerchief. And I want you to do that um, because you're going to experience my grace there. I want you to become like little children in their presence. I want you to submit yourself to them. I want you to be astonished at what's happening. That's my chosen place. Clem and Bertha are going to lead you into my grace. So I have to admit that would be hard for me to do on a number of levels, right? I have ideas about how church is supposed to go, right? I got ideas about how preaching should be. And I, you know, I have, a, I have these ideas and Clem and Bertha, it, that, that's how it would feel for people to go out, especially uh, religious observant people to go out to the wilderness and to, be sub- and to submit to John's baptism. It wasn't part of how you become part of the cool kids. Like the, you were stepping across the line to be recognized in this guy's presence. And I, as I was thinking about this, I, I, I was realizing that my concern, I, would, I realized for me, if that was the case, I, I know this is a thought experiment, but if that were the case, it would be difficult for me because I would feel like I would be choosing between my respectability and being able to receive God's grace. Respectability or being able to receive God's grace. And respectability is just another name for how I have vested interests in the way things currently are. People who are respectable have vested interests in things staying the same. Don't they? I do. I have vested interests in things staying the same. And so baptism in the Jordan River would have been difficult for me, I think. Just as it was difficult for a lot of the Israelites to submit to. And yet, that was the choice. That was the choice. To go and submit to this, to say, this is actually what matters to me. I'm going to take, and the, the other reason I think it would be difficult is, is what we started with, to say, is this too good to be true? Am I hedging too much of my respectability on something that might not pan out? So what people were doing was cashing in all their chips in the way things currently were, right? Maybe they had a friend on the synagogue board, right? Maybe they had a a friend at the temple that they knew they were going to tick off if they did this. You're cashing in a lot of chips on the premise that God's kingdom could come, that something totally transformative could happen. You're cashing in a lot of chips, social status chips. And you're hearing a lot of the voices that are speaking to you saying things like, that's not realistic. That's not possible. That's fine for children's stories, but it's not realistic. And I just want to say, beware of those who tell you what is and is not possible. Because typically there's a vested interest in the way that things are. There's money to be made. There is status and power to be maintained. And typically those who tell you to be more realistic are those who have a vested interest in things staying the same. And oftentimes it's ourselves. That's the other thing. I have a vested interest in things staying the same. And so in the, in the, in the face 
of the violence that we see in the face of the injustice that we see. We've named one of those temptations already, right? Which is to look away or distract ourselves with something else. Like once we look at it, we just say, well, you know what? There's lots of good things happening too, right? Yeah, there's, you know, police brutality, but look at these, these, these cops did something nice, right? And those things are true. Those things are good. That's fine. But it oftentimes is a way for us to distract ourselves from what is the response I need to make? How do I need to repent? How do I need to come? Expectant that God's kingdom is here, is among us. Yeah? How do I need to do that? Another temptation is just to get skeptical. We just despair. We just say, we, we look at the injustice, we look at the violence, and we just say, there's nothing to be done except just rage against it. Right? That's it. That's all we can do. And we just get angry and bitter and hostile, or we just resign ourselves. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. I think another temptation is that we spiritualize the good news. Yeah? We, spirit, like we kind of over-spiritualize it. We say, well, I know things are bad, but at least we're going to heaven when we die if we believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Right? Am I right? Right? We try to over-spiritualize the kingdom to say, well, it's never going to be here and now. It's all going to be later, and it'll be fine. God will work it out. And again, that's true too. But it's not true enough. It's not sufficient for us, for our repentance into what is God actually calling us to do here today. How is the kingdom coming among us? How do we respond to this? Those are responses that are powerfully tempting because they're true in a sense, but they're not true enough. They're insufficient. So how, how do we respond? How do we repent? Because here's, here's the other reality from the gospel reading is that this kingdom that Isaiah prophesied is actually here among us. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this kingdom is here and it is present. And so how do we reckon with the injustice and the violence that we see and the proclamation that, the, that God's kingdom of justice and peace is here and we can participate in it today? We participate by repenting. How do we do that today? I want to suggest just a couple things uh, and then we're going to respond together in prayer. Uh, the Romans reading, I think, helps us with this. When Jesus came, uh, he brought these promises to fulfillment. And uh, how he does this was a mystery, though, even to the disciples up until uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. The short answer is this. How does God exercise his authority in the world? Through the church. Through the church. Through his people. He exercises his authority as his people submit to it and participate in it. And so we have a part to play in submitting to God's kingdom that is among us and participating in it. So how can we do that? Um, the church is, a, is, is meant to be a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of God's kingdom. It's not just meant to be a place where we can get a little, you know, spiritual adrenaline shot every week. Hey, it'll be okay. Keep going for another day. It's a place where we discern the kingdom. It's a time when we come together to... Uh, Experience, encounter, embody, and extend uh, the kingdom of God, the presence of Christ. So what does this mean? The, the, the phrase that, that jumped out to me from the Roman reading was this. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now, this would have been a, this would have been a difficult command. Like that, that feels like a, you know, not a huge hard command. 
but it would have been a difficult command in the Roman church because this was a church that Jew and Gentile were trying to come together to form one church, but there were a lot of cultural problems with that. There would have been a lot of disgust sort of felt viscerally on both sides of that issue. And so Paul urging them at the end of this letter to say, accept one another, welcome one another, is a hugely subversive act in that day. Again, an act of repentance that would have cost them something. And so part of the way that we participate in God's kingdom of justice and peace that transcends these barriers of class, race, culture, is to accept one another. We welcome one another. So two, two pictures of, of what that looks like, okay? We're going to come to the table here in just a moment. And that's the place, the primary place, where we encounter God's welcome of us. So the first thing is, like, we can't do this in our own strength. We must become conscious and participate in God's welcome of us. And we do that at the, at the, at the table. This is his table. We come to this table, and, and Jesus Christ gives us his life at this table. We participate in that. So that's encountering. Embodying, that's where I feel like we, we, we need to come close to home here. So as a community, how do we accept and welcome one another? And I want us to think as we welcome the children back. Welcome children. Come on in. We're almost done here. We're almost done. So how do we accept and welcome one another? Let, let, me, just, let me just share with you something I'm learning uh, as maybe an emblem of this. Um, you know, we look at the problems in the world and we see violence in a lot of different places. But one of the places it's difficult to oftentimes see violence is in our own homes because it's not, it, it's kind of nice violence. And here's what I mean by that. Anytime, anytime someone comes to us uh, revealing themselves and, and being present with us and we try to fix them, that's violence in a sense. There's, there's a sense in which what I'm trying to do is actually for me and not for you. So here, here's what I'm learning, guys. I, this is real-time learning for me. I, like. 10 days ago, this was uh, a huge revelation to me. Um, I do this fairly consistently with my wife and kids. When they bring a problem to me or when there's anxiety or anger or anything like that, my immediate temptation is to shut it down. Right? And I just started thinking about, well, why is that? And it's for me. It's basically for me. I'm realizing it's my shame. I feel like I'm a bad husband if I can't help my wife. If I'm, a, I'm a bad father if I can't get my kids to calm down or if they're misbehaving. And I'm realizing this is, this is just my shame being activated. And my, the call for me to exercise toward my wife and my kids in my home is to accept them as Christ accepted me. And it feels really difficult, to be honest, because I like to fix things. Right? I like to fix things. It makes me feel like I'm competent, in control, worth love. So I want to encourage us. Who, who is it for you that you have a difficult time accepting? Is it somebody in your family? Is it, is it a group of people that are sort of out there? Your extended family? A lot of us came back from Thanksgiving gatherings. Who is it difficult for you to just accept as they are and extend the welcome of Christ to them? One way to think about that is, who, do I, who, who am I tempted to dismiss or ignore or despise? Who am I tempted to fix? And that's one way that we can participate in God's kingdom of justice and peace that's coming among us, okay? The other way, as we extend it then beyond our community, um, 
The other, the, other, uh, the, the other way that we can do this is we can look for those who feel marginalized and fearful, and we can uh, express solidarity with them. We can be with them in their fear, be with them in their marginalization. And I don't, I don't know it, uh, much about how to do this yet, um, but Matt mentioned that we met with a, uh, a Muslim official of some kind um, who uh, runs the, uh, help, helps to run the mosque. Um, Al Huda Foundation, and we just met with him. We reached out to him and said, "We just we wanna we wanna meet with you. We wanna hear from you. We wanna understand what your community is going through at times like this when there's all this foment, you know, about Muslims." Um, and I, I was I was honestly I was shocked about things that I I'd never I'd never really had to think about. So even the name the name is the Al Huda Foundation. And he said we named it Foundation instead of Mosque for safety. That's what he said. I was like I. I didn't think about safety once when I thought about the name of this church, right? I didn't think about like, what would be a safe name where people wouldn't maybe set our building on fire? I didn't think about that. Um, And there was a lot of those kinds of things that he mentioned to me, like we did this for safety reasons. We did this for safety reasons. There's also this very intentional, as soon as all this stuff started happening, there's this intentional reaching out that they do to the police, to the FBI. They called the police, they called the FBI, they called the city. They have to be proactive to say, hey, we're here to help. We want to be cooperative. And again, I've never had to think about that with this church. I've never had to think, hey, you know what? We should probably be proactive. So anyway, my eyes are getting opened to how we can stand in solidarity. There, there may be an opportunity for us in the new year to gather as a church uh, with, with uh, a few of these people from, from this mosque. And um, I'd love it if you guys could, could come with us to do that. I can't remember what he called it, lunch and learn or something like that, where we just learn about their community, learn about you know, what's happening, all that kind of stuff. Um, so those are a couple of examples. Um, I, wanna, I, want us to, I wanna call us into repentance then to say, God's kingdom of justice and peace is at hand. It is here, it is, it is present among us, and we can participate in it today through repentance. How, who do we need to welcome as Christ has welcomed us? Let's think about that as we pray.